This may sound strange, but have you ever wondered, have you ever considered what Satan may have been thinking the day that the angel Gabriel announced to Mary, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the baby to be born will be holy and he will be called the Son of God. We know Mary's reaction to that announcement, but I wonder what effect that good news announcement had on the evil one. From Satan's perspective, that that the second person of the triune God, the eternal Son, would forfeit his glory that he had shared with his Father from eternity past and enter into this world of sin and rebellion as a human being. And that he would begin his human life inside the womb of a Jewish teenager. What? Using our biblically constrained imagination, I think it's reasonable to assume that at some point during the incarnation of our Lord, Satan would have asked himself, why? Why has God the Son, in obedience to his heavenly Father, so humbled himself? Why has God the Son entered into this sinful, evil-saturated world, this, this moral order that's in rebellion, active rebellion against Him? To what end? To what purpose? What's God's plan? Because there must be a plan. Why has the immortal God become mortal? Why has the eternal Son become human? And because Satan is not omniscient, he's not all-knowing, nor is he privy to the eternal counsels of the Godhead, those are questions to which he did not have answers yet. But through the revelation of the New Testament, we, we know the answers. Answers which speak of God's undeserved salvation, mercy, and love to sinners. Answers which ultimately spell Satan's doom. It's all summed up in the gospel, the ultimate display of God's incalculable love. Sin canceled. Divine judicial wrath averted. Satan's death, Satan, death, and the grave defeated. The promise of the new heavens and new earth, all in consequence of what God has accomplished in Jesus' death and resurrection for sin. And the Apostle Peter, in Acts chapter 10, verses 37 to 38, he encapsulates Jesus' public ministry in terms of his opposition to Satan in the power of the Spirit. This relates to our text today, so listen carefully. Acts 10, 37 to 38, Peter says, You know what has happened throughout the province of Judea, beginning in Galilee, after the baptism that John preached. How God anointed Jesus of Nazareth, with the Holy Spirit and power. And how he went around doing good and healing who, who were under the power of the devil. Because God was with him. Brothers and sisters, this morning we're looking at Jesus' power over demonic forces in particular. And we'll see uh, by these acts of rebuking and calming a storm and exercising an army of demons that Jesus, in the power of the Spirit, he is the anointed one. That's what Christ means. Jesus, the anointed one, pushes back Satan's dark kingdom. Through the Spirit's power, Jesus is directly contesting Satan's control over this fallen world. 
Jesus says in Mark 3.27, No one can enter a strong man's house without first tying him up. Then he can plunder the strong man's house. Beloved, Jesus' mission is not fulfilled by compromise with evil. It's not fulfilled by coexistence with evil. But by invading Satan's house and conquering Satan, the strong man who is the head of that house. And because Jesus is stronger than the strong man of the house, Jesus comes and he binds the strong man, he plunders his goods, and he carries off his possessions. Which in this context means Jesus exercises Satan's demons. And in the opening chapters of Mark's Gospel, the inaugurated kingdom of God is making its first glorious advances. And we have courtside seats as we witness Satan's house falling, of Jesus tying up the strong man and plundering his goods. That's the big picture behind the two stories that we're considering today. These two confrontations between uh, the kingdom of God's anointed son and the kingdom of darkness. In the first confrontation, Jesus rebukes a storm that is supernaturally whipped up by evil forces to impede his ministry to Gentiles. In the second confrontation, in the midst of total Jewish ceremonial impurity, Jesus vanquishes an entire army of demons before leaving a Gentile missionary in the area to spread his fame. And in both confrontations, Jesus is victorious, thus showing his disciples, thus showing us who he really is. Look at your big picture in your bulletins. Jesus' identity, who is Jesus, has been Mark's primary concern from the opening sentences of his gospel. After relating four word parables of 4, 1 to 34, Mark records four mighty deeds, 435 to 543, that raise even more emphatically the question of Jesus' identity. Each deed is accompanied by amazement and fear in response to God's powerful presence in Jesus. And the type, the kind of miracles we read of here demand that we ask the same question as the disciples in the boat after Jesus calms the storm. Who is this? A question they asked in holy fear. And we need to ask it with the same fear. And then allow God's word to provide the answer. Friend, if you're here today and you have questions about Jesus Christ, this person, uh, guilty but saved sinners all over the world, worship and love. It's no accident that the sovereign God has brought you here today to hear this sermon preached from his most holy word. And from the Bible, your questions will be answered today. Who is this? Who is Jesus? Point number one. Jesus is the divine anointed one who pushes back the kingdom of darkness by rebuking a storm whipped up by evil forces to impede his ministry to Gentiles. And and just to be clear, a Gentile is anybody who's not Jewish. Now, chapter four begins with Jesus preaching a parable, the parable of the seed among the soils from a boat. Do you recall that? 
And, and there are masses of people following Jesus. And to get away from the press of the crowds, our, our Lord launches off the shore to the, and he teaches them a series of parables about the kingdom of God. Now Jesus wants to go to the other side of the Sea of Galilee in the same boat that he's been preaching in. Look at verse 35. That day when evening came, he said to his disciples, let us go over to the other side. Leaving the crowd behind, they took him along, just as he was in the boat. There were also other boats with him. And we have a pretty good idea about what this boat would have looked like. Uh, Now archaeologists actually have discovered uh, a couple of Galilean fishing vessels from this time period. It would be about 26 feet long. Uh, seven and a half feet wide and four and a half feet high, and then there's a mast and sails on top of that. Um, so it's propelled by four rowers, two per side, with a total capacity of 15 people. So Jesus and his disciples, they launch out eastward, eastward across the lake. But the thing is, the east side of the Sea of Galilee, that's Gentile territory. This is a region where non-Jewish people live, a a people excluded from citizenship in Israel and foreigners to the covenants of the promise without hope and without God in the world. And Jesus deliberately sets out for that region, just as he deliberately goes through Samaria in John chapter 4. So here's what needs to be kind of simmering on the back burner of our brains as we read this account. When Jesus actually arrives at his destination on the east side of the Sea of Galilee, he steps out of the boat and he rescues one Gentile from demonic possession. He leaves him behind to testify about himself to the Gentile people before coming straight back to the Jewish side of the lake. When Jesus says, let's go over to the other side of the lake, he's doing his Father's will. Our Lord is on a mission to rescue one man, that one sheep, that one lost coin. And to leave a missionary behind to spread his fame in Gentile territory. Look at verse 37. A furious squall, which in Greek can mean a hurricane. A furious squall came up. And the waves broke over the boat so that it was nearly swamped. Jesus was in the stern, sleeping on a cushion. The disciples woke him and said, Teacher, don't you care if we drown? Back when uh, my wife Jill and I lived in our downtown apartment, uh, we would love to sit on our eighth floor balcony and watch summer uh, thunderstorms roll in. Uh, If you've never seen a big... Ontario thunderstorm roll in. It's a sight to behold. Uh, But we were able to enjoy this pastime because we were safe and sound. We were in a building that was in no danger of falling over, though I suppose we could have been fried by lightning, but what are the the chances of that? But the disciples, they're veteran seamen, right? And they're terrified by this squall. They know we're in trouble. They're in a boat, (laughs) and they're in the middle of a lake during a hurricane. And the boat is being swamped. They're in real, real danger of dying. This is a situation where everybody needs to control their fear and pull their weight and help out, right? I mean, all hands on deck. That's that's where this expression comes from. No doubt, four of them were just violently straining at the oars. Others were probably bailing furiously. One man maybe was up doing something with the rigging. 
Uh, maybe somebody's repairing some damage that's occurred. And what's Jesus doing? He's sleeping. This is the only place in the gospel accounts we read of Jesus sleeping. And ironically, it's during a hurricane out in the open sea. Some of the disciples, they reproach Jesus. And what they say actually is quite rude in the Greek. Uh, Teacher, don't you care that we're being destroyed? Is that of no concern for you? They're angry. They're frustrated. They're desperate. Do something, teacher. We've seen you work miracles before. Do something besides catching 40 winks. When we're here killing ourselves trying to do stuff, don't you care if we drown? Verse 39. He got up, rebuked the wind, and said to the waves, Quiet, be still. And the wind died down, and it was completely calm. And I would argue, and I'm in good company with several commentators on this, that this is not a, straight, a straightforward nature miracle. Rather, that Jesus is confronting demonic powers in this storm, demonic forces, which in the context of Mark's gospel, don't want him ministering to Gentiles. Now you might ask, Pastor John, where in the world did you get that idea from? It's because of what Mark tells us in verse 39. Jesus rebukes or he censures the wind. Now there's always the danger of having just sort of hanging too much on one word. And some commentators are reluctant to go down this path. And if you disagree with me on this point, that's okay. It's not, it's not the end of the world. But in Mark's gospel, that is the language of exorcism. It's the same word Mark's used twice before in his gospel as Jesus rebukes unclean spirits. For example, I'll just tell you one. Uh, chapter 1, verse 23. I'll read it from the ESV version. And immediately there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit. And he cried out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit, convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice, came out of him. This word rebuke is a technical term used in Jewish exorcisms for the commanding word uttered by God or his spokesperson by which evil powers are brought into submission. And Jesus, in the power of the Holy Spirit, is bringing satanic powers into submission. Jesus is the anointed one who pushes back Satan's kingdom of darkness. In this case, by rebuking a storm, whipped up by evil forces to impede his ministry to Gentiles. But Jesus is also the divine anointed one. Jesus rebukes the wind and he says to the waves, Quiet, be still. Then the wind died down and it was completely calm. Friend, when is the last time you did that? It would never even enter your mind to do such a thing. Have you, have you ever spoken words of command to the clouds or to the rain or the humidity or the freezing cold and, and things have changed to suit you? No. For all of our technology, humanity is still completely at the mercy of the weather. We have no power to change it because we're not God. But in this miracle of calming the storm, 
Jesus is exercising the prerogatives of deity. The miracle, this miracle proves Jesus is God. Only God could do this. In the Old Testament, God alone possesses power to quell storms. Think of Psalm 107, verse 29. He stills the storm to a whisper. The waves of the sea are hushed. Or Job 26, 12. By his power, he stilled the sea. And in this story, we see that same power, that same authority belong to the Lord Jesus. And in this account of the calming of the storm, in Jesus' exercise of sovereignty over nature itself, Jesus is inviting his 12 disciples, and now us, to recognize that he is none other than the living God. Verse 40. He said to his disciples, Why are you so afraid? Do you still have no faith? Now, there's lots of debate among, amongst commentators over what Jesus is getting at. Uh, I think Don Carson might be on the right track here. Jesus isn't saying his disciples have absolutely no faith. Jesus' rebuke isn't against their skepticism of his ability, nor really against the fear that they might drown. Rather, they fail to see that the anointed one, so obviously raised up by God to fulfill God's redemptive purposes to accomplish the messianic work and to fulfill the scriptures could not possibly die in a storm while that work remains undone. They lack faith, not so much in Jesus' ability to save them, but in Jesus as the Messiah. The Messiah whose life can't be lost in a storm as if the elements of nature were out of the control of Jesus and himself. He's just, a, he's just a pawn of chance. Jesus came to die on a cross, not drown in a boating accident. To use John's language, he has perfect confidence that his hour has not yet come. Jesus is the divine anointed one who pushes back the kingdom of darkness, whose mission is to fulfill God's redemptive purposes. And God the Father's will is that God the Son die on a cross as a sacrifice for sin, not drown in this boat. And as Jesus exercises his divine prerogatives, as he controls the sea, as he brings demonic forces into submission, and his disciples meet the power of God, there is a natural and there is a fitting response on the part of his disciples. And that response is... Fear. They were terrified and asked each other, Who is this? Even the wind and the waves obey him. In this instance, God's nearness in Jesus is not something reassuring, but something profoundly unsettling, even terrifying. But it's a holy fear. It's a reverent, terrified awe. Who is this? He commands even the winds and the water, and they obey him. This is proper fear. It's fitting. It's appropriate. Jesus is not a God to be trifled with. He is the holy God who is to be worshipped and loved 
and obeyed. C.S. Lewis's celebrated children's book, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, tells of the adventures of four children in the magical kingdom of Narnia. As everybody knows, Jesus is represented by the lion, Aslan. When in Narnia, the children meet Mr. and Mrs. Beaver, who describe the mighty lion to them. Is he a man? asked Lucy. Aslan a man? said Mr. Beaver sternly. Certainly not. I tell you, he is king of the wood and the son of the great emperor beyond the sea. Don't you know who is the king of the beasts? Aslan is a lion, the lion, the great lion. Oh, said Susan, I I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. That you will, dearie, and no mistake, said Mrs. Beaver. If there's anyone who can appear before Aslan without their knees knocking, they're just silly. Then he isn't safe, said Lucy. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Don't you hear what Mrs. Beaver tells you? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe. But he's good. He's the king, I tell you. Let's move now to our Lord's second confrontation with the powers of darkness and the exorcism of the demoniac. And here we see that in the midst of total impurity, Jesus, the divine Messiah, pushes back Satan's kingdom of darkness by vanquishing an entire army of demons. In particular, I want us to note the fear of the demons before the exorcism and the fear of the townspeople after the exorcism. Mark is showcasing that deliberately. Now, there are a number of exorcisms in the Bible, uh, but this account is the longest, and it's certainly the most dramatic. And remember, in every exorcism that Jesus performs, we see the kingdom of God going head-to-head with its unseen ultimate opponent. Jesus, in the power of the Holy Spirit, is combating the power structure of structure of evil in this fallen world. In every exorcism, we're seeing the conflict between the kingdom of God and the dominion of Satan, between the one anointed with God's spirit and one held captive by unclean spirits. And what is the mission of the anointed one, according to Isaiah 61? We've seen this a couple of times now. The spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives and release from darkness the prisoners. And that's precisely, precisely what Jesus does when he frees a divine image bearer from the the dominion of an unclean spirit. Jesus proclaims not only the arrival of the kingdom of God, but in his ministry, he manifests its arrival by plundering the household of Satan through his exorcism of demons. And again, that's a display of divine power which demands a response. Be it from his disciples, the demoniac himself, the townspeople, from all of us. Torontonians living in 2023. Chapter 5, verse 1. They went across the lake to the region of the Gerasenes. So they're in Gentile territory now. And that point is made very clear by this herd of pigs. No self-respecting Jew would keep a herd of pigs. Verse 2. When Jesus got out of the boat, 
A man with an impure spirit came from the tombs to meet him. This man lived in the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had often been chained hand and foot, but he tore the chains apart and broke the irons on his feet. No one was strong enough to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and in the hills, he would cry out and cut himself with stones. When he saw Jesus from a distance, he ran and fell on his knees in front of him. He shouted at the top of his voice, What do you want with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? In God's name, don't torture me. For Jesus had said to him, Come out of this man, you impure spirit. Now, that must be one of the most lamentable depictions in the whole Bible. I mean, what, a, what a pitiful state. This poor man is subject to some sort of cyclical attack. At times, he's docile enough to be chained and guarded. Uh, but then, due to demonic attack, he becomes so desperately strong that he can break iron chains. And then he rushes out in the wilderness and into the tombs, screaming and yelling. Banished from his home, this man now lives among the tombs, naked, howling and screaming, and lacerating himself with sharp rocks. It's something straight out of a horror movie. But don't be so distracted by the, the horror movie elements of this as to be blinded to the big, big story. This is just a little story happening within a big story, the big story of the entire plot line of the Bible. Loved ones, this blasphemy is occurring in a universe that God originally created good. We need to be contrasting this disgusting scene with Genesis chapters 1 and 2, don't we? Adam and Eve used to walk with God in the cool of the day in the Garden of Eden. That's what life on earth formerly was like. But now, an image bearer of God can be possessed by a legion of demons, an army of demons. He's reduced to a ferocious animal. You don't read that in Genesis 1 and 2. We need to look closely at the disgusting, blasphemous nature of this possession and think clearly, biblically, about the heights from which we've fallen as a race due to our sin and due to our rebellion. We also need to be thinking about the only way these terrible effects will ever be reversed. Not just in this little story, right, but in the big story of an entire created order that is ruled by the prince of the power of the air. It's the same in either case. Here comes the second Adam. The one who will crush the head of the serpent and drive back Satan's kingdom. And in consequence of what God accomplishes in the death and resurrection of Christ for sin, there will be a new heavens and new earth. Thank God for the gospel. When you read this story, look, look ahead. Look ahead to the new heavens and new earth. Revelation 21.5, He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Now this story is of demonic possession is scary from sort of any cultural context, I suppose. But from a Jewish perspective... This story is overflowing with uncleanness. This Gentile man lives in Gentile territory. Gentiles are ceremonially unclean people. Moreover, we're told that the man has been possessed by an impure or unclean spirit. 
Even his banishment to the tombs renders him unclean according to the Old Testament law. Physical contact with this man would defile a Jew for seven days. As well, there are pigs in this region, which are an unclean animal according to the law of Moses. And to cap it all off, most scholars think that a herd of this size and in this location was meant to feed the occupying Roman army. Thus, Jesus meets an unclean man with an unclean spirit living among unclean tombs surrounded by unclean people employed in unclean occupations. The whole account is just overflowing with uncleanness and impurity. And that's the point that Mark wants his readers to take away. Jesus meets us, right? He rescues us in our impurity. Romans 4, 5 is surely a contender for the happiest truth found in all of Scripture. God justifies the ungodly. Friend, I'm here today preaching good news. Even though he is a holy God, you don't have to clean your act up first in order to be acceptable to Jesus. Come to Jesus, the divine anointed one, in your sin, in your guilt, in your degradation, in your crime, and he will cleanse you. Jesus loves sinners, and he is powerful to save sinners. Just look at the lengths Jesus goes to, the hurdles he overcomes to rescue this wretched man, this one man. He goes through a a hurricane whipped up by evil forces to come to this unclean place where no other person would come for any reason whatsoever. We all need to see ourselves, I think, in this wretched man. Jesus' deliverance of this demoniac is a picture of the sinner's salvation. Verse 6, When he saw Jesus from a distance, he ran and fell on his knees in front of him. He shouted at the top of his voice, What do you want with me, Jesus, the Son of the Most High God? In God's name, don't torture me. For Jesus had said to him, come out of this man, you impure spirit. Now, those words are uttered by the man, but they're the product of the unclean spirit. This man's body and his mind has been hijacked by demonic forces. And and notice that the impure spirit has sense enough to fear Jesus. He knows the score. It knows the score. It knows that it's in cosmic rebellion against the person it's shouting at. It knows Jesus is the Son of the Most High God. And the unclean spirit lives in horrible anticipation of the ultimate doom that awaits it at the Son's hand. Jesus could torture it right now, but it knows Judgment Day is coming. And so the impure spirit fears Jesus. Then Jesus asked him, verse 9, what is your name? My name is Legion, he replied, for we are many. And a legion is a Roman military unit of 5,000 soldiers. But even so, it's easy to really see who's in charge here. Who's who's in charge in this situation? 5,000 demons or, or Jesus? Verse 10, and he begged Jesus again and again not to send them out of the area. A large herd of pigs was feeding on a nearby hillside. The demons begged Jesus, send us among the pigs. Allow us to go into them. Do you see what's happening? 
And, and any here today who have not bowed the knee to Jesus Christ in humble repentance, friend, take very careful notice of this. The impure spirits are begging for mercy from the Son of the Most High God as the only alternative to experiencing his wrath. They know the score. But demons have no ultimate hope, of course. The son didn't become an angel to reconcile fallen angels and God, did he? No, he became a human being. So these impure spirits may be granted a temporary reprieve from Jesus, like we're reading up here, but their eternal torture in hell is inevitable. There is no final escape for them. There is no hope for them. But there is hope for every sinner here who calls upon the name of the Lord for salvation. Repent. Believe. There is hope. You only have to believe in Jesus and his sin-atoning death, his life offered up for you, his righteousness credited to you, his legal standing, and God will forgive your sin and give you eternal life and full salvation as an unmerited gift. You don't have to earn it. In fact, you can't. You can't earn it or merit it or clean yourself up first. It's a free, undeserved gift from the God you've defied for all of these years. Now, for whatever reason, and I'm not sure why, but the demons wish to remain embodied. And Jesus accedes to their request. The, the final hour for their banishment and torture has not yet arrived. The Son is working on the Father's timeline. And so he allows them to continue their destructive work, just not upon an image bearer of God. Verse 11. A large herd of pigs was feeding on the nearby hillside. The demons begged Jesus, send us among the pigs, allow us to go into them. He gave them permission. And the impure spirits came out and went into the pigs. He gave them permission, and the impure spirits came out and went into the pigs. The herd, about 2,000 in number, rushed down the steep bank into the lake and were drowned. And, and here we see the demons' true intentions were, what they were in possessing uh, their human host. Just total destruction. And notice, the text doesn't comment on the moral implications of such a loss of animal life or the economic catastrophe of such destruction. The story directs undivided attention to the rescue of one man from a tragic and torturous fate rather than the fate of 2,000 pigs. Why is that? Because human beings are made in the image of God and pigs are not. This is a word Torontonians need to hear today. It's a truth which flies in the face of seemingly half of my social media friends who are always up in arms about dogs being euthanized at the pound, but who remain silent about the murder of millions of unborn human children. Friends, one human being, one aborted baby, has more dignity, more worth, than all the animals in the world combined. All the dolphins, all the blue whales combined. 
And in the eyes of Jesus, the rescue and restoration of one person, of one image bearer, is more important than even vast capital assets. 2,000 pigs. I did the, the Google research. That's $400,000 in today's pig market. Luke doesn't mention it. Just pish posh. Doesn't even mention it. One commentator notes, compared to the redemption of human beings, the loss of swine herds does not rate mentioning. Of course, the fate of the pigs demonstrates the ultimate intention of the demons with respect to the man they had possessed. It is their purpose to destroy the creation of God. And halted in their destruction of a man, they will fulfill their purpose with pigs. That, that's the mentality, brothers and sisters, of our sworn enemy. You see it right here. Satan has what I would call a, a Hitler-in-the-bunker kind of mentality. Hitler didn't sue for peace once Allied troops crossed the border into Germany. He fought on until his bunker in Berlin was literally surrounded. It was a catastrophic waste of German life. If Hitler had had the slightest regard for the German people, he would have surrendered long before. But in the end... He had nine-year-old boys manning machine guns defending Berlin from the Red Army. Satan knows that his time is short, and he rages against the church of Jesus Christ. He rages against the Christ. That's the mentality we're seeing here, just rage, and we're seeing desperation. If Satan can't destroy a divine image bearer, then he'll rage against God's creation by launching a herd of pigs off a cliff. Verse 14, those tending the pigs ran off and reported this to the town and the countryside, and the people went out to see what had happened. When they came to Jesus, they saw the man who had been possessed by the legion of demons sitting there, dressed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. Those who had seen it told the people what had happened to the demon-possessed man and told about the pigs as well. Then the people began to plead with Jesus to leave their region. You're not expecting that sentence. They're pleading with him, please, please leave our region. At the crossing, no, notice that both the stories we've considered this morning end with fear. At the crossing of the lake, the disciples are terrified of Jesus' divine power to calm the storm. And that fear is an open door to asking, who is this? Who is this? Here too, the inhabitants are frightened of Jesus' power to expel the demons. There's the demoniac. He's sitting down. He's dressed. He's in his right mind. The destructive demons, which formerly were within him, they've been cast by Jesus into a herd of pigs and driven over a cliff. They're seeing the results of a stupendous miracle of deliverance. But it doesn't lead to faith. They don't ask, who is this? They should be, but they don't. Instead, they beg Jesus to leave. Right? He's wrecking their economy. And of course, it's not just money or financial security that people prefer. Many people prefer sex to life transformation. Power to life transformation. The path of compromise, the path of ease to life transformation. The applause of men to life transformation. Idolatry of every sort rather than Jesus Christ. My concluding point is 60 seconds in duration. 
Point number three, Jesus, the divine anointed one, pushes back the kingdom of darkness by leaving behind a radically transformed missionary to testify about him. Verse 18, as Jesus was getting into the boat, the man who had been demon-possessed begged to go with him. Jesus did not let him, but said, go home to your own people and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. So the man went away and began to tell in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And all the people were amazed. The story concludes with the former demoniac asking to be one of our Lord's disciples. Jesus tells him no, probably because his being a Gentile would have been just too much of a stumbling block uh, to his ministry to the house of Israel. But notice that Jesus doesn't swear the man to silence as he'd done previously with Jews in Galilee, such as the leper cleansed in chapter 1. Jesus actually appoints this man as his missionary in Gentile territory. Go home and tell your own people and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. So the man went away and began to tell in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. He's actually using his name, right? And all the people were amazed. Indeed, this man has an amazing story to tell back home. But brothers and sisters, our story is infinitely infinitely better than that. When we tell people about what Jesus has done for us, we're talking about the cross, aren't we? The cross. We're talking about the gospel. But what God has accomplished in Jesus' death and resurrection for sin. We were just like this wretched demoniac. We were existing in a spiritual graveyard We were dead in our trespasses and sins, surrounded by other spiritual corpses, howling blasphemies against our Creator God, and filled with unspeakable wickedness. But God had mercy on us. He sent His Son. And Jesus came to us in the degradation of our cosmic rebellion, our anarchy, our revolution, And in the midst of our sin, Jesus Jesus clothed our nakedness with his perfect righteousness. Jesus expelled the wickedness that filled our hearts and filled us with his Holy Spirit. Jesus transformed our blasphemies into songs of praise. And he's given you, brother, you, sister, an amazing story to tell the world a story of God's amazing mercy in his crucified and resurrected son, a truth that's been evidenced by your transformation. You're a transformed person. You're not what you once were. You're a transformed person. Be faithful in proclaiming that good news. Amen.